I'm so excited to bring you God's word this morning. Because today we're going to look at something, a passage of scripture that I'm convinced will change your life for better. Because this week's passage, and you just heard it read, we discover in it the kind of faith that is real. The sort of belief that actually helps you when you suffer and life is chaotic and confusing. And if you've ever found yourself wondering how to survive and grow when life just seems crazy, you're going to want to lean in and listen carefully to what God's Word is teaching this morning. Now, just to back up for a second, for the last couple weeks, we've been going through the book of James with maybe a particular setting in mind. And I am making the decision to read James as God's Word to people who are suffering. And I just want to back up and say, maybe humbly, that this is a controversial thing. Most commentators, if you read folks, uh, will read James as sort of random, unconnected topics. But I, I think... James is written to people who are written, well, people who are going through trials. I think it's written to people who are like us, feeling exhausted, hoping that the cold medicine is going to kick in, right? People who think it's a lot, who sometimes find the world scary because it's changing so fast. Or people like, you know, I think about our church family over the last half of last year. Like we had to think about what it's like to worship God on Sunday, even when he didn't answer our prayers the way we really wanted him to. We've had to think about, and like we as a community have had to learn the hard way, what faith looks like, even if we're standing at the graveside of a loved one who we have prayed get healing and they don't get healed. This is a hard season for lots of us. Some of us are facing big family challenges or health changes or job changes, and change is jarring. So many of us are going through what we might not even want to talk about, but would get labeled as mental health issues. The fact is, lots of us are experiencing trials of various kinds. And I'm convinced, as I read James, I'm convinced James speaks to us. Now, let me just give you two reasons why I think that. First, I think that James is speaking to people like us who are suffering because, well, James is talking to suffering Christians. James starts off, uh, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who's writing. If you read the first verse, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, here's all we know about the very first people to read this book. The early church was Jewish. They're from Jerusalem, and they were persecuted for their faith, and they had to scatter all over, which is what Jesus predicted. Not a surprise. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the world. And I think lots of people think Jesus would make things a little better. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household, which, by the way, sounds like trials of many kinds. James historically is writing to early Jewish Christians who were functionally religious refugees seeking asylum all over. So in other words, they were following Jesus and they got kicked out of town. They had to choose between comfort and Jesus, family and Jesus, safety and Jesus, jobs and Jesus. And what's amazing about these folks is they picked Jesus and they got scattered all over the world because they loved Jesus, they trusted Jesus more than the comfort of their lives. They, to paraphrase Jesus, they took up their crosses and followed him. They lost their life, and 
founded. James's first audience, instead of being at home, were scattered. I think James is about suffering people because it's written to suffering people, which, by the way, also explains why James doesn't talk a whole lot about normal salvation stuff. You don't find a whole lot about Jesus or saving faith or you know, all the normal things you talk to, uh, to people who need to find Jesus. And I think it's because James's audience is people who have already given up everything for Jesus. And if you're visiting with us, if you're watching online, you're like, I don't know about this Jesus. That's fine. I'm glad you're here. We'd love to talk to you about salvation and forgiveness and redemption. And I would go to lots of verses in the Bible on this, but I think James is not written to this audience. James is written to people who are sold out for their faith. People who believed in Jesus so much that they gave up everything. And their problem isn't normal problems. They weren't tempted by affluence or boredom. These folks are scarred by suffering. And James writes to them. That's the first reason why I think James is written to people who are suffering. Second reason why I think James is written to people who are suffering is because, well, James talks to people who are suffering. It's as simple as that. James starts off, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's how it starts. And then it ends, if you read the whole book, it ends with, uh, by the way, if you're really sick, call the elders and uh, see if God heals you. Like, this is a book about problems. And, you know, I, I'm a little defensive about this. If you want to read each verse and take it separately, that's fine. But I am reading James with this idea in the backdrop, that James is talking about how to deal with suffering. And if you've been here to review, we've, talked, we've mentioned that James talks about how to think in suffering. Count it all joy. That you can think about suffering with contentment and gratitude. Then we talked about what to do. And James says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So even if you're going through a crisis, don't be that hurt person that hurts people. And then James, to keep going, he says just because you're suffering, don't forget what it means to follow Jesus. Just because you're in a bad spot, don't forget to help people who are suffering. Orphans, widows, poor, rich. The royal law of scripture James talks about. To love your neighbors. I want to give all of that to you as introduction because I think that having that in the background helps you. If you're convinced as I am that God's word in James is to faithful Christians who are suffering, that idea influences how you read the next verses. We're about to attack one of the most controversial portions of James. Uh, I'm just going to dive right in. It's a lot of Bible. James asked, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this. This passage is the opening to a massive debate, not about suffering, but about salvation. Especially for the Reformers, the argument was against a Catholic church that in different ways linked good deeds to, get to, God's, uh, well, good deeds to God's grace. And even today, lots of people think that God may give salvation as a gift, but there's strings attached. That God somehow in the end weighs my good works against my bad works. Like, to be clear, that's not what we believe in Protest as Protestants. We believe in God's amazing grace. That even faith is a gift. 
And I could talk about that, but instead of uh, reading a lot of St. Paul, I'm, I'm just going to give you our church's uh, doctrinal statement on this. Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Q&A 60, simple question, how are you righteous before God? I'm not going to make you read it, but do think about it. The answer is only by true faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, I put in your handout, it's such a rich, freeing summary of what amazing grace is. The catechism goes, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. It's called guilt, right? When your conscience accuses you, that you're not good enough, that you haven't done enough. Nevertheless, it continues, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I'd never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. All I need to do to be righteous is accept this gift with a believing heart. And that's what we believe about salvation. My point is, this is not what James is talking about. I just want to be able to read what James says and let it stand on its own without getting a debate about how to get saved. What James says isn't that faith needs your work to somehow be true faith. It's not saying you have to meet God halfway. James' point is, if you have true faith, if you're a real Christian, you can't help but live differently. It's saying what James says in the last passage. James said a verse later, earlier, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But someone's going to ask, what if you don't do right? What if you claim to be a Christian, you see people in need, and you literally don't care? What if you're consistently doing the wrong thing instead of the right thing? Now, the most provocative part of James here is James can't imagine that being a possibility. He can't, the point of this is he can't picture someone who has real faith, who uh, really believes in Christ, and their actions don't change. And to be clear, uh, if you look at the verse behind me, it doesn't say if someone has faith. It doesn't say if someone has accepted the grace of God with a believing heart. It says, Someone say the word underline behind me. If someone, you know what it means if someone claims? It, it doesn't mean they actually have something. You know the difference between claiming and having something, right? It doesn't mean you actually have stuff. It's like me saying, uh, my brothers and sisters, imagine if someone claims to have a miracle cure for baldness but looks like me. Would you buy those pills? No, don't do it. Like, you can make a lot of claims but it doesn't make it real. This isn't true faith. This is fake faith. He's talking about all the posers. And here's a really awkward truth about Christianity. Lots of people claim to have faith. Lots of people claim a lot of things, right? There are people who claim to have faith, and they may know the songs, the scriptures, they may go to church and say the right things, 
they may even, you won't believe this, but there are people who run for public office and end every speech with, and may God bless these United States of America, but they may have different motivations for doing that, right? You know, believe it or not, not everybody who claims to have faith has true faith. And I would say, if I were writing the Bible, this is my observation, if you want to see what your house is made of, if you want to see what your faith is, consists of, wait for the storms. That's Jesus' story, right? House on the rock, house in the sand. I think you can test faith by trials. If I'm writing James, well, I've seen this. One person says, I, I, I trust God, and they go through an awful cancer diagnosis, and they're stronger on the other side of it. The other person uh, loses, you know, their life falls apart because they're in traffic. I think storms are how you tell what your faith is built out of. And that's what, you know, this early church saw. There are lots of people who said, Jesus, I'm happy to follow you as long as following you consists of water turning into wine and fish dinners. That's great. But as soon as persecution hits, if I have to move, if I have to be scattered, you know, the people who scatter because of their faith, they understand the sort of faith that's real. That's not what James says at all. At all. James says that if you want to test faith, here's a diagnostic question. How are you loving your neighbors? This is what James says. We'll see. Just watch. Are people who claim to have faith doing good things in their community? That's the kind of faith that will help you in the storms under stress. And then he gives some examples, and I'll flesh this out. Imagine, hypothetical here, a brother and sister, so a Christian in the community, imagine someone at your church is without clothing and daily food. Imagine someone says to them, so go in peace, keep warm, be well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that, James asks. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, it's dead. It's not real. James says, show me someone who has the opportunity to help somebody, but instead says, hey, good luck with that. You're on your own. I hope things work out. James says, show me someone like that, and I'll show you someone who doesn't have real faith. James says, it's not me. This seems rude, but James says, show me someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't care about people, and I'll show you someone who really doesn't understand what God's done for them. That's James. You can't separate claiming to have faith from loving your neighbors, which is provocative, right? Because lots of people try and separate those two. And James acknowledges this. Next verse, someone may say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. So you believe there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, some people think that it's possible to separate head knowledge from heart knowledge to doing stuff with your hands for people. And there's some truth in this. There's some people who love Bible studies and theology. Some people just want to do service projects, and that's okay. But James says what you can't do is separate belief from actions. For example, demons have really good theology. Demons have emotional experiences. Demons may know the catechism better than I do, but that doesn't count. What counts is trusting and loving God who asks you 
to love your neighbors. And if you aren't loving your neighbors, if faith in your head hasn't impacted your heart, impacted your hands, maybe there's something wrong. If there's a compartmentalization going on, James would suggest you can claim what you want, but maybe it's not real. And James, again, not my soapbox, not my thing. James just fleshes it out. You foolish person. You want some evidence that faith without deeds is useless. Okay, here's one. I'm just going to read it. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Of course he was. Abraham is the example of faith. He's a friend of God. God calls him righteous. If you want to see what faith looks like, look at Abraham. And in the life of Abraham, I'll keep reading, faith was made complete by what he did. And scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, so that's belief, and it was credited to him as righteousness by what he did. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So James unpacks a famous Bible story. It's in Genesis. You can look it up if you want. The story goes like this. God introduces Abraham to a circumstance he can't understand. It's a trial. The story goes Abraham has one prized possession, his son Isaac, and God doesn't always make sense. Here's an example. God tells Abraham, Abraham, you're saying the right stuff. You're singing the right songs. But let's see if you really believe it. So God tells Abraham, take your one son, the one that you love, and here's what I want you to do. Kill him as an offering, which doesn't make any sense. Sometimes God says stuff that doesn't make sense. And the story, the question Abraham has to answer is, do you really trust me? Do you have enough faith to do something that makes no sense, that's a big risk, that's a threat to your comfort, security, and everything that you love? Abraham, do you trust me enough to take the next step in faith? And Abraham could have done what everyone does. God, you, you know that I believe in you. I, I have faith, and you know that because I sing the right songs, I say the right stuff, I have the right bumper stickers on my car, I listen to the right music, but I am no way going to take that next step here. That's crazy, God. God, uh, I will take the next step if you explain to me how this makes sense. That's what most people do, right? God, give me the big picture, and then I'll fill in the pieces if it makes sense. If I can see how this circumstance makes sense, then I'll do it. Lots of people trust God enough to obey him if it already makes sense. God, I will trust you after you explain to me why you didn't answer my prayers. But if I don't understand you, <laughs> I'm not going to take that step. That's crazy. That's what lots of people do. And James says, that's not, that's not faith. Faith isn't going, I know where I'm going. I'm going to take the next step. Faith is, you know the story, Abraham goes, this seems crazy, God, but I'm going to take the next step. And he does. And by the way, it's just a test. God stops him from hurting anybody. <laughs> but James' provocative point is this. Real faith isn't going, God, I'm going to follow you as long as I see, and as long as it makes sense. That's not faith. Faith is going, God, this doesn't make sense. I, I, don't, I don't know why 
I prayed and I prayed and the cancer came back. I, I, I have no explanation why this divorce is happening. I don't know why my kids are far from you and addicted to substances. I don't, I don't know why my job the way it is. God, I, I don't, this is not the way I would design the news cycle this week, but I'm going to trust you anyway. I'm going to take the next step, even if it doesn't make sense right now. James says that's what faith looks like this. That's what faith looks like. I'm going to give another example. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James goes from Abraham the patriarch to Rahab the not a conventional role model, right? You don't normally look at Rahab and go, well, that's how I should live my life. She did not look like a believer. She did not know her Bible. She knows very little about faith. In Joshua 2, it says that she knows that God is God above and on the earth below. And she would have had every excuse to go, sure, God's probably going to win this. Uh, saying that's easy. Uh, well, she is celebrated because she acted on that. In the story, you can read it. She protected spies that were on the side of Israel who were about to destroy her own city. She just risked her life from both sides in violent battle. Rahab took great risks because she really, really believed. And she didn't, she didn't stop at going, I believe in God. She took the next step that didn't make sense. James says, that's what faith is. And I think all this collectively raises a hard question. And the question is, what does your faith look like? And James doesn't say that works save you. But what he does say, and we can flesh out some theological implications some other time, but right now I'm just fascinated by this kind of faith that helps you when you're suffering. Because the book of James, true faith is working faith, and I think it connects all these sort of random topics. That having a true, strong faith, it, when, when you're in a place where you're like, God, I don't know where I'm going next. This, this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to take the next step. I think that's not just the kind of faith that makes you work, but I think that's the kind of faith that gives you resilience, the ability to keep taking steps instead of having a sort of rational despair when being sad would make sense. I mean, Abraham had the kind of faith that let him keep going even when nothing made sense. That's the kind of faith that empowered Rahab to make a difference when she could have been just captive by despair. I think true faith is what explains why some people have a kind of foundation that doesn't crumble when they encounter disaster, that doesn't knock them down when they have incredible loss. You know people like this, right? You know people who have lost everything and they keep their faith and they thrive and they grow and they have joy in the middle of circumstances you almost can't understand because it's so bad. True faith doesn't just protect you from that. It changes what you do today. Think about what most people do when they're disappointed. I mean, think about how fragile people are, how we naturally go to fight or flight, how we hurt people, or we run to substances, 
or isolation or despair. We just give up. Do you know what makes a difference? James is key to consider trials joy is to have true, authentic faith. And do you know how you know if you have faith or not? Two, two tests. One, I think, is trials. I mean, you ever wonder why they call hard times trials? Well, it's a test. Do you have enough faith to keep going even if things fall apart? Like Abraham, is he really going to keep going when faced with potential tragedy? That's the first test. How do you withstand storms? The second test, I think, is service. Are you willing to protect the spies at a risk? Will you give water to, to thirsty people? Do you love your neighbors? Do you give medical care to people overseas when it'd be easier to stay home and hang out over breaks you're exhausted? The faith that passes those tests, a real foundation, of course, it's a gift from God. You're not earning it, but if that's you, and I know lots of you are like this, doing more than just doing good, many of you are thriving and suffering. You are following Jesus when it's hard. Here's what I think God is calling us to do. First, put in the work to look at your own heart. Run those tests. Evaluate, evaluate your faith. Look for, as Jesus would say, fruit in terms of good work, obedience to God's commands. Are you doing what God has asked you to do? And if you're not taking that step, why not? Just take time to ask yourself the question. And for a lot of us, it, and I know you, it's not going to look like a complete U-turn. It, it looks like a one step at a time. When you ask those questions, be willing to take the next step and lean more fully on Christ and do whatever God calls you to do, relying on the amazing grace of God for salvation. James brings up faith, true faith. And I think that for all the people that claim a belief in Jesus, I think that what James brings up is the missing ingredient in so many people who claim to be Christians in our culture. It's a faith grounded in a trust in Christ. It's a gift from God. And I think it comes down to this. Do you want to know how to have joy during trials, difficult times? That's what James asked. I think it, it starts as simple as this. Start taking steps in faith that both glorify God and blesses others. And I think that's what makes a difference for those of us who will inevitably experience suffering. So Father, as we sang, would you give us faith? Would you help us to follow you? Can you help us to trust you even when it's difficult. Father, please protect us from the temptation to only take steps that make sense to us. Father, can you give us the faith to trust where you lead us? Can you give us the confidence in your mighty works that we meditate on? Can you give us confidence in who you are as the creator, the God in heaven, the God on earth, and can you lead us to love our neighbors as you would guide us to? Father, we cannot avoid the storms of this life. We cannot avoid various trials of many kinds, but we can learn how to grow in them. And can you help us not to just thrive, 
but help us to love our neighbors even when things are hard. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.